Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, he speaks about two great signs that occurred in heaven. And the very first of these signs that John sees are the faithful ones of the ancient Israelites who God likens, who are portrayed in the book of Revelation as a woman. And she is hugely pregnant. And at any moment in time, she's going to give birth to a son who, as it says in Revelation 12, is going to rule over all of the nations with a scepter of iron. And so that is the very first of these signs, but then comes yet another sign, which is the sign of the imagery of a giant red dragon. And it is a dragon who wields tremendous power and influence in this world. And yet, as John looks at this giant red dragon, he notices how it is standing around the pregnant woman. And as John looks very closely, what he notices is that this giant red dragon is waiting for the woman to give birth so that it can eat the baby as soon as it's born. While the dragon is unsuccessful in doing this, the child is born. It, it grows up and it lives the greatest life that's ever been lived. And the child, now a man, returns to heaven, ascends to the throne of God. War breaks out in heaven. And then what we find, as it is depicted to us in Revelation 12, is that we find the dragon and his angels waging war against Michael the archangel and his angels in the heavens. And then the dragon is defeated. And then we find these words in Revelation 12 and verse 9 in this very apocalyptic book. And what that word apocalypse simply means is something that is unveiled. Something that is revealed to us where, where it is said to us in Revelation 12 and verse 9. And then the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil. Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world, he has been thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so this is a source of great rejoicing in heaven, as we might imagine. And yet for everybody else still living upon the earth, it is said in verse 12, But, but woe to you, O earth and sea, and woe to you all who dwell in them, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then in verse 17 come these disturbing words. And they are absolutely bone-chilling. Where John records in Revelation 12 and verse 17, that then the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel, 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now very clearly this is referring to Christians living in in the first century world. But what we need to understand this morning is that this is just as much a description of you and me in the 21st century. Where if you believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah and is God, if you hold to the commands and to the testimonies of Jesus Christ, war has been declared upon you this morning. And you know, whenever there is a baptism here, it's always a very special time and it's it's just such a happy moment where you know that all of heaven is erupting in celestial joy and celebration. And yet it is also very much a sobering moment where, where we're all standing there, but what is going through our minds is that, yes, this is my brand new sister in Christ. Yes, this is my brand new brother in Jesus, but, but, but now as a result of their faith and baptism into Christ, now they are a wanted woman. Now more than ever in their lives, they are a wanted man and, it, and they have a huge, enormous bullseye on their souls now. Because as we see in Revelation 12, after Satan fails to destroy Jesus, after he is unsuccessful in destroying Christ's church, notice how he changes his strategy. And what that new strategy is, is to wage spiritual war on individual believers in Jesus. And that's you and that is me. And so I mean, every day, as soon as we awake, I mean, are we processing in our minds that not only am I about to go to work, but I'm about to go to war? For a very long time, I used to think that the church was just a cathedral that had a sign on the lawn out front. I've known many people before who thought of the church as nothing but some kind of a religious country club. And yet, do we understand this morning that this is an army right here? I mean, we are crouching in a foxhole this morning. Drums are beating. Hostility is in the air. Bullets are whizzing over our heads. Spiritual corpses lay mortally wounded in pools of blood. Yes, this is the church, but so much more, this is warfare. Something else John reveals about the evil one in his first letter, 1 John 5 and verse 19, John says that the whole world lies underneath the power of the evil one. I mean, that's a very scary thought, isn't it? That the whole entire world lies under the power of the dragon, of Hasatan, the accuser, our adversary, the evil one, Satan. And I mean, he has great power. In the book of Job, for instance, what we see is that Satan has, has power over even nature to kill Job's children. How the evil one has power to even speak through his loved ones, his wife and his friends, in order to discourage him from his faith in God. We see that Satan has power, a little bit of power, in order to even remove his, his health and his wealth away from him. 
I mean, the devil has more power than we give him credit for. And yet, even though we are at war this morning, it's very important for us all to understand specifically what we are at war against. Because even though our adversary, the evil one, has tremendous power that he wields, we rest in the thought and in the reality that Satan is not God. Satan, we believe, is just a fallen angel who chose evil and wickedness, but he is not God. Satan cannot be everywhere at once as God is. He, he is not omnipresent. And so he cannot always be near us as God is. But what we need to capture this morning, though, in our message is that Satan is not alone in his work. In the remainder of this message, I would like to go to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul reveals even more to us about exactly what the spiritual war is and how we can be victorious. In Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 12, what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but rather we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil which are in the heavenly places. And so Paul is writing to this Greco-Roman world that was very much immersed in the sport of the gladiators who would fight in the Colosseums. And oftentimes they would fight to a grisly death, not always, but, but usually very close to one of them dying at the end of it. And so what Paul is saying to these young Christians in their faith is that He's saying, listen, I know that you have had your enemies before in your life. And I know that you are suffering under lawless emperors who are evil and corrupt. And you have been able to see all of these people. But, but what I want you to understand, church, is that there is a greater battle. That there is a greater force. That there is how all of this energy that is being heaped upon you that you've been able to actually see in the form of your rulers and enemies this is coming from invisible spiritual forces. Spiritual forces that your naked eye cannot see, but they are very much active in your life. And here Paul speaks first about the principalities and the powers. And really, if, if you've been wondering why I speak so much, why I decry as much as I do about not putting our identity in political parties or in political personalities, this is why. It's because so often what the, how the deceiver deceives us throughout history has been through the principalities and through the powers. I mean, if we could go back to Revelation 12 for just a moment, how specifically did the evil one try to devour Jesus when he was born? through the principalities and the powers of King Herod, who at that very moment in history had been slaughtering every male infant in Bethlehem, trying to kill Jesus before he even got here. How did the evil one try to extinguish and neutralize the first century church through the principalities and the powers of the Sanhedrin and of Caesar Nero himself? And what we see in the world of today, I believe, is an even greater challenge because 
Many of the principalities and the powers of our society use religious phrasing. They adorn themselves in religious images. They speak religious language and terminology. And yet what we find is that the principalities and the powers offer us a rival kingdom to give our allegiance to. And so every day what Jesus is inviting you and I to, every single moment of our lives, is that in this world of of being angrily and violently formed by the principalities and the powers, Jesus is saying, you can come over here instead and be formed by this radically different counterculture kingdom of love and peace and of my beatitudes. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 6 is this. He's saying that it's not actually flesh and blood that you are wrestling, that you are fighting to the death against. But rather we are wrestling and we are struggling against principalities and powers. Against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil and wickedness. And there is no question whatsoever that what Paul is is speaking about here is Satan and his forces. Paul is speaking about satanic angels, about evil spirits, and about demonic entities. And I'm sure that most of us have heard many sermons and classes about Satan and how the evil one works in the world. And what about demonic powers? I fear that demonology is just one of those matters and topics that that we just try to ignore out of existence. And yet the grave reality is is that we cannot simply just, just ignore demonology out of existence. So what I want to do this morning is to begin a series in these next few weeks. And I want us to explore what the scriptures reveal to us about demonology. Now, I'm not an expert at demonology, and really this in no way is going to be an exhaustive study where we're going to know everything that there is to know. But rather, I just simply want to look at a number of of examples and encounters of demonic activity in New, New Covenant Scripture. And I want us to see exactly what these evil spirits are doing. But more than anything, I want us all to notice what happens when God shows up. And then I want us each week to answer the question, what does this mean for us in the world of today? And yet as I say the word demons, though, it really, it just begs the question, doesn't it? I mean, what are demons? What in the world is a demonic entity? Well, there's a lot of discussion and debate about exactly what a demon is. I think if we were to ask most ministers and theologians, what is a demon, what they would say is, well, a demon is a fallen angel. And yet when we immerse ourselves in the ancient Jewish world, though, we see that they they had an entirely different comprehension of what demons were. I think, for instance, of the Jewish historian Josephus, and and he lived and, and he was a historian as Jesus walked the earth. And what he said about demons was a prevalent belief of what they were in the first century. Where Josephus writes that demons are the wicked spirits of the dead 
who enter into the spirits of, of living men in order to destroy them. They, many of them had believed that what a demon was, was, was the spirit of a person who was dead, who was evil, who came back into the world looking for Christians specifically, looking for anybody who was vulnerable in order to weaken them and to cripple them and to enter into them as they had possessed them. Now that's a very strange thought to our ears, admittedly. I think most of us are going to respond to that, well, the dead cannot come back to earth. Or can they? I think, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, as the spirit of Samuel, who's been dead for years, is conjured up out of the ground, and what is he doing? He's speaking to King Saul. Matthew chapter 17, we see Moses and Elijah in the promised land speaking with Jesus about his crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, it's been over a thousand years since Moses died, and, and there he is speaking with Jesus and Elijah. And I mean, it just makes us wonder that if the righteous dead are able to return in some way and to speak or, or to appear or to manifest in these ways, is it not outside the realm of, of some possibility for the unrighteous dead to also speak or to work in the world in some way? And you know, one of the reasons why God was so opposed to the Israelites intermingling with, with all the other nations was because in the ancient world, many of these nations bowed down and worshipped actual demons. And sure enough, worship of demons reaches into Israel at some point. And in Psalm 106, Psalm, Psalm 106 is a description of ancient Israel's corruption. And I want us to listen very carefully to what is recorded there about how specifically Israel went astray. Where it says in Psalm 106, 28, for instance, it says, and then they yoked themselves to the Baal of, of Peor. And what that means is, is that they were worshiping an idol. They were bowing down before a block of wood. And you then notice as, as it then goes on and it says, and they were eating sacrifices offered to the dead. As we drop down a few verses, 36 through 38, it says that they had served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their, their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they had sacrificed to the idols of the Canaanites. And so here what we see are the Israelites worshiping those who were dead. And by every indication in this text, the dead who they happened to be worshiping were demonic entities. And yet in any case, though, we could speculate all day long and, I mean, completely miss our point this morning. I mean, we could go back and forth all day long about what, what exactly the, the um, a gulf of separation means in Luke 16 for those who have died. And yet regardless of what we individually conclude a demon is or is not, here is what truly matters for us each day of our lives is that a demon is a spiritual being that in some way, shape, or form roams the earth in malicious pursuit of souls. But not only do 
demons want to destroy us, but really they also traffic in deception. First Timothy chapter 4, what the Apostle Paul writes there, he says how the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons. And Paul goes on and explains exactly how this occurs. He says how this occurs through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So I believe what this means is that demons oftentimes do their most sinister work through the mouths of those who are are malicious liars. People who have no conscience, who delight in leading other people astray. And a danger here is that if Christians listen to individuals like this who have no conscience, and all they do is just lie and lie and lie in a very shameless manner, it is very possible that we can reach the point where we're no longer able to discern a difference between what is true and what is a lie. And so really, to summarize everything for us this morning, regardless of how they are going to work in this world, demons want to destroy our faith. They want to destroy our joy and our peace in Jesus Christ. That is what they're after. They want to reclaim our souls for the evil one. And so that is very chilling news. I mean, that is very sobering. And that really is what um, our bad news is this morning. But I've got good news for us, though. And that good news is, is that satanic and demonic presence in our life can be neutralized. Satanic and demonic power in our life can be resisted. Because what does Paul say in those first couple verses just before he explains what our war is? Ephesians 6 and verse 10, what he says is, he's saying here is how to respond to Satan as he declares war upon you. He says you declare war ten times fiercer right back at him. Where it says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And and here is how you do it, he says. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, he says, therefore lift up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all in order to stand firm. And so once again, what he's doing is he is using language borrowed from the Roman gladiator blood sports. Where before any battle would, would ever commence, a man who was fighting, would, he would have to lift up the full armor that had been given to him in order that he could withstand every weapon and every assault that was made against his life. And this really is why Ephesians 6 is so enormously important for us. Really, I would say it like this, is that Ephesians 6 is so much more than just another letter Paul wrote to a house church, but rather Ephesians 6 is a declaration of war. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is calling on the church to lift up arms and to go to war against those forces of evil. 
And how are Christians specifically to bear up arms? What are those arms? Are they 40 calibers? Are they AR-15s or, or atomic bombs or grenades? Rather, he says, here is what our weaponry is in verse 14. Here is how you will, will be able to, to live to tell the story. Verse 14, he says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So we have all of these, these lies swirling around in the world, all of this deception in the world. What he says, though, is, is that stand firm, therefore. And he says, have a belt of truth fastened to you. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness or of justice and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, lift up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I believe the most important component as we, we live in all of these ways, though, is in verse 18. Where he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication." And I mean, that is how it's done right there. What he's saying to us is that if we, we fight this spiritual war on our own individualized human strength, we are susceptible to spiritual collapse and to spiritual destruction. And yet he says, if the strength within us is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are relentlessly being empowered by the one who is greater than. And each week in this series, what, what I am going to leave us with are the words of John in, in 1 John 4.4. 4. As he says, greater is he who is in you, Christ, than he who is in the world, Satan and his forces. When we live in this way, there is nothing that Satan, that his angels or that his demons can do to us that will be able to destroy us or separate us from Christ. And yet it really is not a question, it is an indisputable fact that Satan and every angel and demon in hell have declared war upon our souls, on our homes, on our marriages, on this congregation, they have declared war every single day. They have declared war on the souls of our children and of our grandchildren and of our spouses. So it is not a question, has Satan declared war on us? He does declare war on us every day. And it, rather, what the question is and what the choice is and what, what God's invitation to us every single day is this. Satan has declared war on you. And now are you going to declare war on him? Are you going to declare war on the forces of the spiritual darkness by, by living with, with love in your soul today. By living with the words of God hidden in, in our hearts. Are we going to lift up the full armor of God by, by meditating on his gospel and upon what is true? And by incessantly calling on the name of the Lord in prayer as we live? I close with this thought this morning. How in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria is enraged against Elisha the prophet. 
And he surrounds Elisha's city with this huge, vast multitude of an army. And they've got horses and they've got chariots and all of that. Well, the servant of Elisha sees all of this and he, and he runs to Elisha and he's freaking out. He says, Elisha, what are we going to do? They have us surrounded. And it is then, as the great prophet says, he says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And then Elisha does something very unusual. Where he begins praying and he says, O oh Lord, open up the eyes of my servants. Give him spiritual vision in order to see all of the spiritual armies and hosts of yours that surround him. God grants this extremely rare request. Where the servant all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, he now is able to see glimpses into the spiritual realm. And he sees God's angelic host surrounding that whole entire army that surrounds them. And he sees chariots of fire. It was naked to the invisible eye, but now he's able to actually see it. And yet I want us to all consider the opposite, though. I want us to imagine right now if God, in the blink of an eye, were to allow us to see the demons. And to see the angels of Satan surrounding us wherever we may be on any given day. Sometimes they could very well be standing right next to me as I speak in this auditorium sometimes. How they appear in our homes. How they appear wherever we happen to go sometimes. I think the reason why we are not able to actually see these, these spiritual evil forces it's because if we were able to see them, I, I imagine we would just have a heart attack from, from just sheer trauma. And yet Joe Beam in his book, Seeing the Unseen, says this. He says that, that if God opened your eyes to see all of the spiritual beings, good and bad, around you in the life that you live this week, which of them would be smiling as they watched your actions? If God's angels are not happily smiling upon the way that you're living, then Satan's angels and demons are maliciously grinning at the way that we are living. And even though we cannot see them with the naked eye, the words of Elisha echo forth to us this morning as he says, Do not be afraid. And that's because those who are with us are far greater than those who are with them. And greater is the Christ that is in us than the devil and the demons who are in this world. So I pray that, that all, all of the messages in the weeks to come may, may open up our eyes to the spiritual war that, that is waging against us every single day. 